You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. You to grab your Bibles this morning again and turn to the book of Genesis. We've been studying through the book of Genesis, the foundations of our faith from the very beginning, how in the beginning it was God and God spoke and all things came into existence. And so we find ourselves today uh, in the book of Genesis chapter 8. We're going to be going through verses 1 all the way into chapter 9, verse 17. So if you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty. Just put your hand up. The ushers will bring you one. If you don't have a Bible at home, we want that to be for you as a gift. Take that with you on your way out as well. So as you're turning into Genesis uh, chapter 8, as we've been uh, focusing on the the story of Noah and the flood and the ark and, and all of the amazing things that are going on there, let me ask you, do you believe that this really happened? You kind of asked this last week as well. Do you believe that this really took place? That the whole earth was overwhelmed by water, water that came from above and water that came from below. As we studied last week, we learned that it, it went as high as 20 feet higher than the mountains. And do you believe with that that Noah also built the largest wood-framed ship that has ever been built in history, and that he took two of every type of animal onto that ship as God had commanded him, that, that he and his family and all the animals and the birds survived on that ark for almost a whole year, and that after the earth had dried up, the whole human race began once again, and the animals began to repopulate the earth once again, Let me ask you, do you believe in such an incredible, fantastic, even unfathomable story as recorded in the scriptures? Or is this, again, where the Bible loses you? Is this where you become skeptical? Can we take God at his word here, as we do with the rest of scripture, that this really happened, or do we need more evidence? Like, what if we could see the ark with our own eyes. What if we could go today to the mountains of Ararat and climb to the top of Mount Ararat and there we see the ark right before us? Would that bring you to a place of finally believing? I shared a quick story last week that as a kid I climbed a mountain and found a seashell fossil, right? And that was somewhat helpful to my faith, but is that what we depend on? Do we depend on the evidence that we see here that it is really true, that the Bible is really true, that God himself is really true. Well, as many over the years have been fascinated by the story, it's, a, it's an awesome story, many expeditions have gone out uh, through the years to search for the ark and where it landed. And over the past couple thousand years, many have also claimed to have found it. I've got some pictures here of some of that stuff, I'll explain a little bit of it to you. In fact, as far back as the Jewish historian Josephus in the first century, he wrote about Armenians who sold relics from the ark. They've said to have found the ark, and they're selling relics that are coming from the ark. Theophilus and Chrysostom from the early church, they wrote about sightings of the ark from people. 
In fact, there was even a monastery of St. Joseph that was built in the 4th century AD at the base of Mount Ararat to preserve relics of the ark. It was later destroyed by an earthquake. But there are scores of others since that time who claim to have seen it with their very own eyes, even to recent days. There was a Chinese mission that went out and they claimed to have found the ark. That's the pictures on the right. Uh, They claim to have found uh, these little uh, uh, container areas made of wood at about 4,000 feet on the top of Mount Ararat, and they came out claiming to have found specimens of bone and wood fragments to prove it. There has also been recent satellite imagery of a boat-shaped anomaly, uh, and this came from U.S. military intelligence. And even this popular site here, if you look to the bottom left and the center, this is a pretty popular site called the Durupanar site in Turkey. I think I'm saying that correctly. This is close to Mount Ararat, where there is an arc-sized earth formation. I got a video there. You can just play that. There's no sound. It's just, I was at home looking up on Google Earth. Where is this? Can I see it from, from space? And so as we, we walk through this, you're going to see... It's kind of crude because this is me with technology, but I'm, I'm recording my screen, so I punched in Mount Ararat, so we're going to fly there really quick. It's a real place. The scriptures talk about the mountains of Ararat. So as we fly there, you see it's an actual mountain on the, on the borders of, of Turkey, and Iran is very close there as well. But like I said, this Durapanar site in Turkey is close to Mount Ararat, and I punched that in here next. And we can see that we're gonna we're gonna fly over there if it can if the video can keep up. Um, this is not too far from there. In fact, uh, the Turkey the Turkish uh, people they actually even have a museum there, and they call it the Noah's Ark um, Park. And if you can see there, and I I can't see it on my screen, but I can see it there. You see this anomaly. You see this shape here. And, uh, and it turns out, it, it looks like it's in the shape of a giant ship. Of course, it's rock formation now. But, uh, you know, as the ark measured out to be about 500 feet, I think I even measure it here from space. And we got about 500 feet there as well. So some believe this is the remains of the ark, a fossilized rock formation of the ark. This is along a lava flow. But the thing is, is so many people have gone out to try to find this. There's all these different sites as those other pictures were showing as well. But none of the evidence is conclusive. Everybody has evidence that goes against what is there. Some support it, some are against it for sure. But the thing is, is that we just love to be searching for these kinds of things. I think we all have a bit of an inner Indiana Jones, right? Wanting to find some of these lost things. And so there's been all these different accounts, theories, of, of people who are claiming that it's real, but nothing is conclusive. Nothing has quite enough evidence, but we all have the drive to want to find it because it's a fascinating story. Uh, who, wouldn't, who wouldn't want to find it? And if you did, ask yourself, what would that do with all your questions? What would that do for your faith? What would that do for your belief in God himself and his word? To which I, I asked the question, is, is this what we truly need? Do we truly need to find the evidence of the ark so that we can truly believe in the God of this book? Like I know it would, be, it would be so cool to find it, but I actually don't even think the Lord would want us to find it. 
He wants our faith based on the word of God, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Friends, as awesome as it would be to see it, true faith would never come from finding the ark. No, just like Noah uh, building the ark, he, he built it on faith. And that's the same for us. We need to trust in the word of God based on faith. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so as we approach this, the second half of this flood narrative today, remember that it's by faith that we understand this. It's by faith that we believe. It's by faith given to us by God's word that we ultimately will learn more about him and who he is, right? Because this book is about God. It's his self-revelation. And so today, as we hear about the incredible duration of the flood, as we hear about the subsiding of the waters, and we hear about the new beginning of mankind, what we're going to see that's even more incredible than finding the ark is the incredible character of God that is on display through this story. That God is a remembering God, that God is a restoring God, and that he is a restraining God. So let's pray. We need the Lord's help. Our Father, we come to you covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We come filled by your spirit. We come towards your word that you have written to mankind, how you have revealed yourself so sufficiently, so perfectly, and without error, so that we can study not only what you have done, but who you are. And Lord, as we need to be a people who are about knowing our Lord, knowing our God all the more, would you teach us about yourself through this incredible story today? We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. And so I would normally read through all the text right now, but we're just going to walk through the text because it's a long chunk together as we go through. But as our text begins today, it began, and we mentioned this last week, that it begins, but God remembered Noah. And through this first section here, verses 1 to 13, we're going to learn that our God is a remembering God, and that in that, we can trust in his faithfulness. So after such a a globally catastrophic event of the unrestrained pouring out of God's wrath as he reigned out of the heavens for 40 days and 40 nights, as the water burst forth from the fountains, the deep fountains of the earth. After all of this prevailed mightily upon the earth and the waters came up to 15 cubits above the mountains, as all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, right, all the swarming creatures and all mankind God blotted them all out, meaning he took them out, he removed them, he wiped them from the slate, and blotting out is a forgetting of those people and those creatures. But then as verse 23 said from last week, it was only Noah who was left, and only those who were with him, his family, and the animals that are on that ark, Verse 24 from last week, the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days, right? That's five months. The whole earth is covered under that lethal weight of the seas. Why? Because God had had enough of man's sin. Sin was too great on the earth. And so he chose to end it all except for one man and his family and a boatload of animals. 
Now again, if if the Bible ended without that hope of Noah, it would be an incredibly horrifying, sad story which would just reveal to us an incredibly horrifying God. Now to be sure, God could have just ended it all there. He could have just walked away. He could have left. He could have just left the earth completely flooded, never to deal with man's sinful ways again. And friends, he in his sovereignty could have chosen to even leave Noah and his family and the animals on that boat to die. To truly put an end to sin once for all. But that's not where the story ends in the scriptures. No, in fact, it is just the beginning. No, the story doesn't end here because there's so much of God's character that needs to be revealed through the scriptures. As the Bible, again, is God's ultimate self-revelation to mankind, he is a God of justice and wrath, and rightfully so, as we studied last week, but he is also a God of mercy and a God of grace. And in that mercy and in that grace, God has a plan of redemption. And so with that plan of redemption, he is a God who remembers He's a remembering God. Verse one of our text today, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Right, he's not remembering in the sense that God kind of forgot about them. No, of course not. God was the one who called Noah to build the boat. He was the one that brought them into the boat. He is the one who sealed the door. His remembering is not just a calling to mind, his remembering is a recounting of his covenant fidelity. Meaning that God here is remembering himself. God here is remembering his word. God is remembering his character, that he is always faithful to keep his promises. And so in his remembering here, we see God take action. As the text says, It goes on and says, God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, right? No more rain, no more waters gushing deep from within the earth. Verse three, the waters receded from the earth continually and at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. So not specifically Mount Ararat as we know it today, but the mountains of Ararat. Verse five, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, that's over 300 days, the tops of the mountains were seen. Verse six, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. He sent out a raven likely because a raven is a pretty tough scavenger. A raven could live off of decomposing bodies. It could likely survive more than all the other birds, which it obviously did. It didn't come back. Obviously, it's feeding itself. And it's going back and forth until the earth dried up. But then verse 8 says, Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. 
But the dove found no place to set her foot. There was no place for her yet. And so she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him, and he waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth, and then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. And so with that, Noah now was aware that the, the flood was truly over and that God had truly remembered him and that the judgment is now finished and by God's good grace and mercy, God had truly remembered Noah. Verse 13, in the 601st year, so 601st year of Noah's life, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from all the earth and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Verse 14, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, this is a grand total of a year and 10 days, or based on the lunar calendar, the earth had dried out. So friends, as Noah is looking out of that ark, as he's looking to dry ground, what he's looking upon with that dry ground is a testimony of God's faithfulness. It's a testimony of God's covenant faithfulness to man, that man can trust in God because he is a God who is covenantally faithful. Friends, our God is a remembering God. What he says, he does. You can take that to the bank forever and ever. But friends, I'm sure with Noah and his family, just think about them on that ark for that year. Think about the tireless toil of caring for those animals, feeding those animals, cleaning the pens out. Supplies are depleting. Drinking water is now growing scarce. And they're longing to just get their feet on the ground to get off that boat. I'm sure as they were on that boat, there was an extreme amount of stress and angst and worry. Like, God, when is this going to end? God, it has been a year already. What's going on, God? Did you forget us? Now, if we remember the first audience who this was written to, we remember similar thoughts and complaints that would have gone on with the Israelites in the wilderness with Moses, right? In Exodus 14, 12, they were complaining, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Friends, it's the human condition to question God's plans. We are conditioned to question God's ways, to question his faithfulness, especially when we can't see the end of the game, right? Especially when things are tough. As the people of Israel were just released from bondage in Egypt, once they hit the border of the Red Sea, and, and, and once they knew that Pharaoh was hot on, his, on their tail, they couldn't see God's glorious plan ahead. They couldn't even fathom that he would blow us a strong wind across that sea to divide that sea and that they would cross over on dry land and that God would then follow up with their enemies by drowning them with the sea. 
right? They couldn't see that one coming. I mean, who could have seen that? But so is the ways of God sometimes. Right? We wonder sometimes if God has forgotten about us. That maybe like the Israelites or, or maybe like Noah and his family were possibly wondering here. Maybe we wonder at times, God, where are you? I thought you were with me, God. Maybe especially in the darkest floods of life. Where everything only feels bad. When you're anxious and worried and you wonder where God is or what God is doing. Maybe you feel as though sometimes that that you're forgotten by God. Anybody feel that? Even though that you've heard his promises over and over in your life, even though you've learned about his plan to save, maybe you wonder at times, is he really true? Well, friends, that's where feelings always need to be trumped by the truth, where worries always need to be counseled by God's promises. Friends, the truth in this story that you can hold on to is that God covenanted to save Noah and his family and the animals on board, meaning that he promised to save them, right? He put them there. He shut the door. He sealed it. And that although in the moment, in the tarrying, it seems, when it seems that God is forgetting, friends, the truth is, and this truth you can take to the eternal bank, is that if you are his, God always remembers you. As small as, as you think of that whole world covered with water, and as small as you think this ship is with Noah on this ark, God's hands were always actively sustaining. God was always actively watching. God was never forsaking. He was always caring until the right time, God's time, then he acts. He followed through on his promises, right? And so as doing that, what we're seeing here, he's he's pulling back the waters, And then he brings Noah's ark to finally land on on solid ground that we see in verse 4, right? On the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month. When you see all those numbers there, that that recording of time, there's a lot of accuracy going on here, right? I can think of Noah on on this ship, and I'm wondering if this is where we get these exact numbers would be from Noah. I'm sure they're putting the numbers on, on the wall in chalk or something, right? On the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, exactly according to God's time, that ark comes to rest. It came to rest. Could you just imagine that feeling, right? That ark that would roll and sway throughout all the storms, the violent storms over those 200 days, and now it comes to rest. Friends, that's the rest that can only be found in a remembering God. And interesting enough, when you study the name of Noah in the Hebrew, his name sounds a lot like the Hebrew name for rest. We can rest in his promises. 
Friends, no matter what you're dealing with in this life, no matter how hard it is, how stressful it is, how tough it is, remember that you've got a remembering God. And you can always and absolutely trust in his faithfulness to come through. Right as Jesus said in the Great Commission, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As God is revealing this to his people. He's revealing that to us through his word here. He's revealing that first to his people that he is a remembering God. Now as the waters are subsiding and Noah and his family are called out of that ark, what we see next is that God is also a restoring God. He is a restoring God and that means that we can hope in his goodness. So starting in verse 14, it says, In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so just as Noah so obeyed the God as he was building the ark, we now see him obeying the Lord in his command to evacuate the ark, right? This vessel that has kept them alive for so long. Verse 18 says, so Noah went out and and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Like, finally, we can get off this boat. I'm sure it was bittersweet. I'm sure they were attached to that, the safety of the ark. But now they're heading out into the world, and God is calling them to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And where did we hear that before? The beginning of Genesis, right? Just like in the beginning, as, as was the original command from God to his creation in the beginning to be fruitful and multiply. We see this throughout Genesis 1, right? And this was given to both animals and mankind. It is time again, judgment is over, and it's time to live and to prosper and to propagate and to grow. Friends, what we see going on here is a redo. It's a redo, basically, of Genesis 1. It's a, it's a reboot, Right? God has pressed a pretty hard restart here, and everything needs to get going again. But after he destroyed it all, what we see is God is now restoring it all. In fact, as you study the literary structure, you see that the point for uh, decreation being answered by recreation is, is going on here pretty heavy. We have a graph of just some of the, the literary structure here. You start in the middle and work your way out. Where the floods were rising, God matches it with the waters receding. Where the floods began to fill the earth, he matches it with the drying of the earth. Where he commanded them once to enter the ark, we now see him commanding them to leave the ark. And where he resolved to destroy, he is now going to resolve to preserve life and order. And where there was violence, now there will be peace. And again, this is all wrapped up around that climax of God's remembering. 
We also see this with these days and dates that are being recorded here. We see this recreation being the answer for decreation. So we see these numbers being used, and you see how they reflect in that chiastic structure. Friends, the point is pretty clear here, both historically, literally, grammatically, numerically, that when God remembered Noah, that the judgment was complete. And now mercy and grace has come. And instead of decreation, which already happened, God is recreating again. He's starting all over again, right? With a male and female of each kind. He's commanding them to be fruitful and to multiply. And he's starting all over again with one family, like one family led by the one man who lived by faith in a time of darkness. One who walked with the Lord and worshiped God in word and deed. And we see that even further here in verse 20 where it says, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He was probably just absolutely anticipating building something again, right? Building that ark for 100 years, now he's going to build an ark. But it's not just about building, he's, he wants to worship God. Noah takes some time here, and he takes some of those clean animals, and he's going to sacrifice them to God. Verse 21 Actually, verse 20 says, Noah built the, the altar to the Lord. This is the first altar recorded in the Bible. And he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offered a burnt offering on the altar. Remember those seven clean animals and birds that he brought on the boat? Well, this is where they're coming back in. This is all for the offering and the worship of God. And so, it, so Noah does so. He sacrifices them to the Lord. And then verse 21 shows us how the Lord responded to this. It says, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And then ju just as he did in the very beginning with Adam and Eve, chapter 9 goes on to say, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. So we, we see a, a returning to man taking dominion again over creation, taking dominion over the animals. Just think about these animals that would have been in that ark. They would have been obediently living and, 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 and submitting to Noah and his family, but now they are to fear mankind. Because why? Well, we see here that man is allowed to eat meat now. We're allowed to eat, eat meat. So the meat eaters... Yay, we're excited about that. The vegans, not so much. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So there are no limits to the animals that can be eaten. But what God is saying here as well, there are limits as to how you eat them. Verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood, there is to be a respectable approach in how we are to, to use the animals. We're not to be like animals ourselves as we eat. 
but we are to regard the lifeblood of an animal as sacred to the Lord. The Israelites, hearing this for the first time, would have known so much about that in Leviticus. Verse 5, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So if we remember how violent it was before the flood, as violence was such a major grieving point in God's heart before the flood, violence between animals and mankind was now being given serious constraint. And then he also says uh, between men and other men, in verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So as the first murder, remember of Cain and, and Abel, our murderous hearts continued on from that day. We even know that through the, the testimony of Lamech too, that we were a violent, violent, horrific people. And so God puts in, in writing here that murder is to be taken seriously because murder is ultimately the destruction of God's image in man. And that because of that, life needs to be taken when somebody takes a life. This is the very beginning of what we would understand as capital punishment. And so what we're seeing here is, is the beginning of civil laws being practiced in this new humanity, in this new creation. And then he says in verse 7 again, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So there's a lot of reflective language going on here that's being brought up from Genesis 1 and now being put forth here in Genesis 8 and 9. Because God is restoring what was lost. And so let's just take a moment and think about it. Think about how far man had fallen in that first thousand years, in that first ten generations, from Adam to Noah and his sons. The world has gone from such a glorious and good original creation to now falling so far in our sin that God so completely wipes everything out except for one boat and one family, and he's starting all again. As this one family disembarks onto the earth again, we have to also think about what was that landscape like that they stepped onto? What was the world that was left after a year of flood? Right, this was catastrophic. This was global. This was a worldwide flood. This would have radically altered the face of the earth. Right, if you remember those fountains of the earth breaking loose, bursting forth. And as the rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights, Christ, uh, Christian and creation scientists believe that it was the flood that caused the earth's surface to break apart and collide and shift, which then created and separated the cont continents that we have today, that this was the beginning of tectonic shift. This is when the highest of the mountain ranges were propelled upward and the lowest canyons were formed and carved out. Molten lava from within, deep in the earth, would have spewed forth and the layers and the layers of dead animals were, were covered with sediment and all that vegetation covering the layers and layers and that's being washed all over the face of the earth. 
all because of the biggest catastrophic event that has ever happened on this entire planet and that it changed everything. And so as Noah and his family step out onto this new earth, this wasn't the earth that they knew. It definitely wasn't anywhere close to Eden anymore. Signs of death would have been all around them. The vegetation and the trees would have been all gone. It would have been a wasteland in their eyes. Let me ask you, have you ever seen a, a forest right after a forest fire? It's pretty sad. Everything's black. Everything's destroyed. You wonder, how is this ever going to come back? But then you come back three months later, six months later, and you see green things starting to come up. You see, you see that it's coming alive again. You see that it's starting to rebuild itself. Seedlings are, are, are pushing forth again. Flowers and grasses and weeds are beginning to flourish again. And the forest begins to restore itself. And so as Noah and his family would have stepped out onto this new world, even though it was showing the signs of death, life would be starting again. And God was beginning his restoration process. Friends, as God is good, God is the ultimate restorer. He is a restoring God. Just think about that wasteland. Think about that, what that world would have looked like to them. Look at the beauty of creation that we have now. I have a picture of Lake Moraine. Kim and I were up, this, up there this summer for the first time. In fact, we were up there twice. Most photographed lake in all of Canada. Buses and buses of tourists heading up there. You have to book that thing well in advance to even have a hope of getting up there. They're up there all day. When we got up there, we seen the beauty of God's creation. In fact, when we were standing there, there was some tourists coming up behind us and they were just gasping at the beauty. As you stand back and you look at the, the jagged layers of rock, you see them towering over that lake. You see the, the reflection of those mountains and those aquamarine aqua waters. You just can't help but see how God takes something so catastrophic, so destructive, and makes it so incredibly beautiful. Right? Those layers of rock jutting forth into the sky is evidence of the result of God's judgment and, and wrath. But yet as God restores the vegetation and the trees and this lake here, it's just so magnificent. Friends, God is all about restoration. He loves to take what is broken and make it new. And so as that dove brought back that first olive leaf, it showed Noah that God is restoring the world. God loves to restore broken things. And that's true for us as well. He's all about that. You know, we can sometimes think we've got to clean ourselves up before we can come into the presence of God. We've got to clean ourselves up before we can come to church. We've got to clean ourselves up before we can come to God's people. But that's not the truth according to who God reveals himself to be right here. No, as God is restoring the broken earth here in Genesis 9, he also loves to restore the brokenness in us. Right? Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Right? He's, he's not far off. He is drawing near to you. He loves to heal you. He loves to restore you. Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. 
You know, sometimes we think that God is too high and too holy to want to care for the mess that we are. That's not who he is in the scriptures. Now listen to the prophet Isaiah who says in Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, he is high and holy, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. God says this, I dwell in the high and the holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. For what purpose? To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Friends, as all of us are so affected so deeply by the thorns of our own brokenness, you need to know this, that God in his goodness and God in his holiness loves to heal those who are struck down by sin, those who are destroyed by this world. He loves to come and remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, as he says in Ezekiel 36, 26. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Friends, that's who God is. He loves to restore us from, from the dead, from our brokenness. Friends, this is something that we cannot do on our own. No, we need spiritual restoration that can only come from the great physician himself. We are so marred and so crushed by the sin of this world and by our very fallen selves, God has to come and do that work. It's a God work. As God is restoring the world here in Genesis 3, he's all about restoring us as well. And friends, this is also an ongoing thing for the Christian in the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of constant restoration. We are a restoration project for the Lord. We don't just enter the kingdom to grow stagnant. No, we have been given a new heart and a new spirit, and we've been given the, the word of God, not just to spin our spiritual tire, tires. No, it's to grow. The Lord is all about continual restoration of our hearts. That as we are called to put off the old man, to put off our old ways, and to put on Christ, the soil of our heart now becomes fertile ground for spiritual fruit to grow so that instead of immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry, so many dark and broken ways, we begin to produce spiritual fruit by the power of the Spirit within us. As Galatians 5, says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And friends, this fruit only comes forth in a well-tilled heart. As God was restoring Noah's world, Noah and his sons would also have to get after the work. Next week, we're going to see how Noah's going to plant a garden, a vineyard. They have to get after the work. They have to join God in his work, the work that he's already doing. And the same goes for us. As God does a deep work within, we join him in that work within. We devote ourselves to his life-transforming word. We devote ourselves to prayer. We give ourselves to the body of Christ. We join together in deep fellowship for future and further transformation. That's why, and this is a plug for small groups, that's why we're big on small groups here. 
because it needs to be a more than Sunday kind of a life. If God wants to continue to do a deep, restoring work in your heart, which he does, transformation only comes with what you're doing personally and the mutual care and ministry that we can do for one another as we point each other to God's word, as we counsel each other to God's word, as we hold each other accountable to the sins that we are are committing, but also encourage each other in the gospel. And so this is just commendation to to get into a small group this year. Prioritize that time in your life as of the highest priority. The key thing, friends, is that we need to be restored and we need to be continually restored. We are God's restoration project and he loves to restore us. And then thirdly, another characteristic of God, a trait of God that that he reveals to us here next is that he is a restraining God. He is a restraining God. We, We can rest in his mercy. In chapter nine, verse eight, it says, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you as many as came out of the ark, for it it is for every beast on the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth, When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. He says again, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Friends, even though the Lord knew that this new start would soon be stained and corrupted by man's sinful ways again, as he already stated here that the the intentions of man's heart are evil from his youth, from back in verse 21, what we see him doing now, instead of, instead of leaving the door open for more future worldwide judgment like this, what we see here is God making a covenant promise between him and man and the world that he is never going to bring a global flood upon the earth again. That he is never again going to strike down every living creature. No, he, he restates it over and over again here. Right? There, was a, there was a command to be fruitful and multiply. They could only be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth if he's not flooding it every thousand years, right? In fact, he mentions three times here that he is the one that establishes the covenant and that there will be a sign, he says three times. Three times he also speaks about this bow in the clouds, right? We understand that to be the rainbow. And so as God clearly and boldly promises to restrain his wrath, to restrain his justice upon his creation, what we see him doing here is extending mercy and extending grace. Mercy towards a world that that so quickly turns from him. 
Mercy to a world that that so readily and blatantly disregards who he is and so quickly runs to evil. And he extends grace to that remnant, right? Noah and his family and those animals, grace to a remnant of those who truly worship him. Friends, the flood stands as a testimony that God is absolutely and perfectly just, And yet the rainbow in the sky stands as a testimony that he is also merciful and patient. We've already seen this through the scriptures, this balance between justice and mercy as God reveals himself. Two attributes about who God fully is, right? It's not just 50-50, right? No, he's he's 100% just and he's 100% merciful. Even though he knows man is going to fall headlong into sin once again, God promises to restrain himself. You know, last Sunday in the afternoon, my family and I went down downtown Calgary to celebrate our son's birthday. Little did we know that it was Pride Day. So everywhere that we went, we were met with rainbow-clad people. You know, the whole LGBTQ thing. People waving rainbow flags. Not because they're celebrating the covenant promises of God to never bring a worldwide flood of judgment again. But rather using the rainbow to celebrate sin and immorality and frankly just a corruption of what God has originally designed to be pure and lovely. And so it was kind of ironic just focusing on the rainbow here and then Experiencing that last Sunday afternoon, uh, this week as I've been preparing this sermon, reflecting on the ways of the world, I've also been called in my heart to remember the patience and the mercy of God. That our world today would be so bold even to flaunt his covenant sign before his very face. If you've ever seen a patient and merciful God, we're seeing that on display today. That although we know his hatred of sin, although we know of his ability to destroy, that right now with the waning culture around us, he's still choosing to restrain himself. Right? He's not okay with it. He's not just overlooking it. He's not accepting it. Absolutely not. No, he hates it. He hates sin just like he hates all sin. The Bible clearly states that the the wicked are storing up wrath right now. And that in their blatant flaunting of their sin in his face, what we're also doing in this is presuming upon God's kindness. Romans 2, 4-5. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But it's because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So friends, as we look at the current flavor of sin that is dominating and saturating our culture, and also also as we look upon our own sin, Although God promises not to flood the earth again, that doesn't mean that his judgment is not coming. It is. And his judgment is coming soon. 
The next judgment is not going to be one with water. It is going to be one with eternal fire. Friends, God will have his day. He will deal with the wicked once and for all. But right now, in the time between, he is holding back. He is restraining himself. He is extending mercy and kindness so that sinners will come to repentance. So that just like Noah, they will truly come to see him for who he is. That they will turn away from their bondage to sin. And that they would receive the righteousness that only comes from Christ. And that they will believe and they will worship him. And they will walk with him all the days of their lives. Friends, as the rainbow flags mean something entirely different to this world around us. The rainbow, according to the one who created it, is a sign that God is merciful towards a world that hates him. That God is also not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to salvation. Friends, don't ever think that those who wave the flags and parade downtown are too far gone. Don't ever think that. Don't ever think they're too far gone for the life-saving, powerful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, friends, just like you were a lost sinner, so too they are lost. No sinner, no matter how far gone, is out of the reach and capability of God to save and to transform through repentance and faith. And so, friends, as much as the darkness of this world may disturb us, the same mercy and the same kindness that has led us to repentance is the same mercy and kindness we must engage the world with. And this may lead to their repentance. So the next time you see a rainbow flag or a rainbow in the sky, let it remind you of God's mercy towards you and his mercy towards the world and let it drive you towards those who were lost with the life-saving message of Jesus. And ultimately, friends, this gives you rest because in it you know that God is good. Let it give you rest that God in his kindness didn't immediately judge you, right? You're a sinner from birth. Let it give you rest that God in his patient mercy allowed you to live long enough to bring you to a place of true faith in Jesus. That's 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's God's heart. So friends, if you are in Christ, you have rest. As he suffered your hell upon his shoulders, we are at peace with God. But friends, if you're not in Christ, don't presume upon his mercy. Don't presume upon his kindness. No, as God's mercy is renewed every morning, there is a limit to his mercy, and it is coming. We don't know the day or the hour when we might get that disease or death might be on our doorstep. We don't know if we're going to make it home from church today. But God knows. Friends, if you're not in Jesus, Jesus says today is the day of salvation. Let his kindness lead you to repentance. Let his mercy lead you to cry out in confession over your sin. Cry out to the Lord to save you from your sins. Call out to him to remove that heart of stone and to give you a heart of flesh so that you can believe as Jesus bled and died on that cross. He bled and died for all who would come. 
right? As Jesus said, come to me, I will give you rest. And that's for those who are in him, those whom he calls. What rest and assurance we have in him. So friends, as we're seeing God restore, as we're seeing him renew and even restrain We're seeing the character of God display. And this is the same God that is your God today if you are his. He is a remembering God. We can trust fully in his faithfulness. He is a restoring God. We can hope in his goodness. And he is a restraining God. We can rest in his mercy. Let's pray. Our Father, we we come to you with with this incredible story that, that we can't even really fathom with our minds but we believe it because you have revealed it. We believe it because you are God and you have revealed it to us perfectly and sufficiently through your word. And God, as we come to you as your people, we even acknowledge that even amongst us there may be some who do not believe, some who are still choosing to go their own way. But Lord, as we we look at your judgment and your wrath, we also look at your grace and your mercy, and that is the message that we proclaim to the world. We proclaim to each other, we proclaim to our family, our friends, to our neighbors, to the ends of the earth. And so if there is anybody amongst us who does not believe, we pray that you, by your spirit, will remove that heart of stone today and give them a heart of flesh so that they could believe in you and trust you with all their life. Lord, you are a good and faithful God. You are gracious and merciful. And as we see your justice and as we see your mercy, help it again just to remind us about your restoration work that is amongst us, that as we push forward into this new ministry year as a church, that you have refining work to be done in us, this ongoing restoring process. May we lean into that process and may you by your spirit, by your word, be doing the work within as we join you in that work together. We love you, God. We want to praise you. We want to thank you for who you are, who you have revealed yourself to be. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.